Okay. Well, hello everyone. Welcome to the Two Age Say Journal podcast. I got to admit, this is my third time around on this session. Uh, and due to technical difficulties, it's not been working out for me. Man, so where are we? <clears throat> so I'm just going to get straight. I'm getting pretty sick of hearing myself talk about this stuff. Um, okay, we're going to uh, session number three. Excuse the background, by the way. We're in my study. And also my kid's playground over there. Playroom study so forgive that but um it's just this, this, this is actually where i do my work uh, i also do have a study at church but um at the church building but man the internet there's so bad this would not work uh so here i am uh my name is andre pastor of bethesda baptist church felix though and uh i you've joined the 2h sojourner podcast where i normally hang out with my brother mike and also, sometimes Nick and Chris are on the podcast as well, and we discuss uh, life and theology for Christians in the overlap of the ages between the already and the not yet. And um, key to what it means to be a sojourner and a pilgrim, an exile in this, in this world, is knowing, um, uh, having some sort of assurance of salvation uh, and to knowing how to persevere and what will help us to persevere as Christians. Um, are we going to persevere? Is this something we trust God for? Is this something that we need to do? Is there a chance we could lose our salvation along the way while we pull, uh, continue in our pilgrimage through the world? Um, these are key discussions that come up in the Christian life anyway, um, but it's also a key discussion that comes up when you talk uh, Reformed guys like me, talk to Lutheran guys like Jordan Cooper and Flame. So what we've been doing is we've been going through um, the conversation with Flame and Dr. Jordan Cooper, a Lutheran pastor and theologian and a Lutheran rapper. Both of them come from the reform background and have moved into Lutheranism. So I'm curious to know why they've done that. Um, and I've just been giving a kind of running commentary on uh, the claim, really, that um, Lutheranism and the, the Lutheran way of understanding salvation and which is it's the same gospel they're christians same as us but uh, their kind of way of of understanding the whole kind of um uh, biblical teaching of christianity their biblical their theological system aids um assurance of salvation uh, more or, as opposed to the calvinist system which they say hinders it um so uh, we've been going through this i'm not going to recap on the stuff that we've already done there's two other videos go check them out uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to continue in that discussion uh, where I'm going to play you some of the video and then give a reform perspective on what they're saying. Um, and so hopefully it's helpful to you. Uh, uh, we're not going to cover all of it in detail. I'm just going to jump into certain bits. I'm going to do my best not to take things out of context and to represent fairly. Uh, but so I'm going to try my best to give you enough of a context every time so that because um, I do want to, I, I don't, I'm not doing this because I think, Lutheran theology is bad. I think that uh, Lutherans make excellent dialogue partners with Reformed folk. Um, we're both, you know, uh, we're all Christians. We're, we're sort of related. We come from the Reformation event and the Reformation uh, movement. And uh, I think that the Lutheran critiques of Reformed culture are very, very helpful. But I think their critiques of Reformed theology are a little bit wanting. My basic position is this, that um, if uh, the Lutherans, the emphases that they have on assurance and justification and the objective work of Christ are all far more powerful, far more fitting when those emphases take place within a reformed setting. So I like the, the emphasis in uh, Lutheran thoughts. Some of the distinctives I, I, I struggle with uh, but I like the emphasis in Lutheran thoughts. I just think that it's more consistent actually with Reformed theology than it is with Lutheran theology. Um, but I like talking to Lutherans. I think we should be listening to Lutherans and engaging more with it. Um, which is why I've often called myself a Reformed Lutheran Baptist. So uh, without further ado, let's jump into it and, and let's get going. I'm jumping in about 50 minutes into the video. So I'm just gonna go ahead and get the screen sharing on. And there you go. I'm going to take my face out of the way, the flame's face, and stick myself in the middle. Ba-boom, ba-boom, make myself a little bigger. 
And we're jumping in a little bit too far. So you can go back about there. Right. Let's see where we are. Right. His elective will. I can I can impact that. Um, but you know, in a lot of regards, if someone has faltered in their faith, at least they can be confronted with the law and and, and repentance and return to the Lord through the righteousness of faith. So there's still hope. Right. You know, versus Man, I may I may find out. Surprise! I never knew you. Yep. And that's a, to me that's a more scary thing to walk around. Yeah, I think through. it is too. And just you know, to put that that verse is really important because that's usually kind of used as maybe the proof text that you can't fall away from the faith. Yeah. Uh, which again, I just don't think that's the the point of the context. Just as you're saying, um, this is about these false these false teachers, mm-hmm. and he's saying that you know it's. Their motives from the very beginning were wrong. They were of these false prophets that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 7. Mm-hmm. And now they're falling away and, and they're open, you know, heresy. Now this has just proven what's already been the state of their heart. Yeah. But I don't think that's meant to be taken as a universal principle of, therefore, no one who is saved, uh, you know, can ever fall away. Yeah. I just don't think that's really even in, in John. Okay. <clears throat> um, so the... We jumped in. Flame was talking about how actually the the if you believe in the perseverance of the saints, that once saved, always saved. That the if you are truly truly saved, you cannot fall away. And therefore, if you do fall away, it's because you were never truly saved. And saying that actually, that's a uh, he finds that a, a far more frightening position to be in, because you could go along thinking that you have faith, and then one day dis- uh, discover, hang on. Um, it was never real faith to begin with. Um, whereas in the Lutheran system, you can be truly saved and fall, uh, fall away. And so if you uh, do fall away, that's because you just lost your, your salvation. That's, that's sort of less scary. At least, at least you have some control over that. Whereas if it's about God's election, there's no control over that. Um, and uh, so, I mean, the first thing to say there is that God's election is a terrifying concept for finite humans because it does make us realize that we are not the center of the world, that we serve his plans and purposes. He doesn't serve ours. This is shocking for us. Um, it, it, it reveals and exposes just how man-centered, uh, self-centered we are. And when uh, we encounter a sovereign God um, and discover actually a worldview that says we are not the center, he's the center, and we feed into his story, his plans and purposes, rather than the other way around. That is a bit scary, and it's a bit overwhelming. Uh, but this is, it doesn't mean it's wrong. Um, I, I think the, the whole idea that, uh, you know, uh, knowing that you can lose your salvation, um, and that that explains why some people fall away from the faith is somehow... It gives confidence. Again, it's not something I understand particularly. Um, for me, uh, I, as someone once put it, you know, uh, knowing that you can lose your salvation is like trying to go to sleep when you're not sure if you really locked the door to your house. You know, as a South African, uh, you just can't do that. I can only go to sleep when I know that the doors are locked. And so um, I, um, I, just, I just don't get it. If I can lose my salvation, I would. I think to kind of view um, the perseverance of the saints as this thing that means um, you'll never really know whether or not you're truly elect, same as the argument of limited atonement, just, it, limited atonement, just goes against the grain of, of what it's actually all about. So perseverance of the saints is meant to be a hopeful thing. If you're sitting there as a Christian thinking, um, oh, I might one day discover that my faith is not real and that I was never truly uh, a Christian in the first place. Well, first of all, at the point you discover that, you're not going to care because you've abandoned the faith. And so it, it, it's, it, and the second of all, um, that's not its purpose within the New Testament. The purpose within the New Testament is to say things like, um, the God who began the work in me is going to bring it to completion. It's a hopeful thing. So I'm trusting in Christ for today and I'm trusting in him that tomorrow I'm still going to be walking my faith. I'm putting my confidence in him that he who began the work is going to bring it to completion. And obviously if it comes down to a question of, well, does your salvation depend on you not losing it 
or God not losing it, then God not losing it is going to give me far greater assurance, even if it takes it out of my hands, even if I have no control. Um, so you, uh, what the conversation then moves on to is the uh, Jordan Cooper saying often used as a proof text for the perseverance of the saints is that teaching in one John. We know that they were never part of us because they went out from us. We know that they were never Christians because they left us. And he's saying that that is exclusively uh, or, or that, that, is, that is directed towards the false teachers. You know those teachers were false teachers from the beginning because they departed from the faith. It is not meant to be a general principle for every Christian. And um, I'm going to disagree with him on this. I've already agreed with him in a previous video that I don't think 1 John is to be read from an individualist point of view. It's not for me to go sit alone in a dark room with a checklist of 20 things to see whether or not I'm in the Lord. And often it is portrayed that way. You know, can you tick this box, this box, this box, this box? If so, you're a real Christian, you pass the test. That, I don't think that is um, the intention of 1 John. Um, but I don't think you can say it's only directed at false teachers either. I think the issue in 1 John is this. Uh, let's say you have an, uh, you're part of a church which has an eldership, and half of your elders take half of your church or a, a substantial amount of your church away with them to some new teaching that says that Christ really um, didn't appear in the flesh. He didn't take on flesh at all. Um, and the remaining elders are saying that's a false gospel. They've, le they've, they've left the faith and we know that they never truly held on to it uh, because of it uh, uh, for that reason. He's not only talking about the false teachers. He's talking about all the people who've gone with them too. So the issue, the pastoral issue in 1 John is that if you're sit there, sitting there and you've seen the church split and you've seen half of your elders go one way, half of your elders go another way, and you've seen half of your brothers and sisters go one way and half of your brothers and sisters go another way, you know, how do you discern true Christianity? And um, it, it partly has to do with doctrine, but those Christians who ultimately are deceived by false doctrine are certainly included in John's scope there. Uh, it's, it's, it's not, I, I don't think it works with the data, um, with the actual texts in 1 John to say he's only talking about false teachers. He's also talking about those who've gone along with the false teachers. And I think that's just plain from reading uh, 1 John. Um, so I, I'm, I'm disagreeing with him on this point. I don't think, I think that that's a convenient way to read it from a Lutheran point of view. I don't think it fits the text. John's mind at that point. So I think it's wrong to, to import that there, especially because we have so many other texts that yeah. speak very clearly yeah. um, to the issue that are, that are pretty clear uh, about falling away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is one of the issues where as, as when I was a Calvinist looking at these texts, uh, eventually I had to come to the point where I just said, I've got to stop explaining these away. Yeah. Because I felt like I was just making excuses for why the, the text didn't mean what they said. Yeah. Of, well, you could fall away, but you can't really. It's just like a hypothetical warning. It's not actually possible. Yeah. Or, well, yeah, when it says being cut off from Christ, you're not really in Christ. You're just externally in Christ somehow. Yeah. Instead of Okay. Uh, there's a couple of issues there. So the the one of the issues is... He's saying there are so many texts that very clearly talk about Christians falling away. I agree with that 100%. The question is, uh, what are they falling away from? Um, so the, um, the, as far as I know, there are no texts that clearly say you can fall, you can lose your salvation. Um, I think there are plenty of texts that talk about people uh, at one point professing faith and at another point uh, rejecting that profession of faith. I, you know, so uh, at one point they're professing faith, another point they're falling away from a profession of faith. Um, but uh, the explaining away of these passages, um, of these many passages, let's just be clear, none of them say you can lose your salvation. Some of them sound like they might be saying that. Some of them sound like they're probably saying that. Um, but they, none of them necessarily need to be read that way. Um, so there, there is a sense in which everyone reading the Bible has to see there are warnings about falling away. Everyone reading the Bible has to see that there are 
examples given of people falling away from their profession of faith. That is a long way away uh, from saying um, uh, that you can, those who are saved, regenerate, born again, can lose their new birth. That's a, that's a different thing. Um, now, uh, he's, he's made reference that one of the ways that uh, reform guys try and get around this is by creating an external um, covenant and an internal covenant. And so when people are falling away, they are falling away from the external covenant. And as I say, um, that's not a Reformed Baptist thing. That's more of a Presbyterian thing. Um, so uh, it's not, I think Anglicans have adopted it. I don't think it arises. I think there's some degree of that in Anglicanism, but I think it's more of a Presbyterian thing. But for Reformed Baptists, we don't really do the external, internal covenant thing anyway. Ours is just that it's a falling away from a profession of faith. Um, uh, so, yeah, remember that. Uh, let's go back to the conversation. Just like, but what does the text really say? Right. I mean, at what point are you just making categories and, and making excuses for what the text says to make it mean something else? Yeah, which is a principle we're taught in, at least, you know, my experience, I'm sure in yours, yeah. sola scriptura, yeah. exegesis, and, and scripture interprets scripture. You interpret the, you know, the, the difficult passage in light of the clear ones. And these principles, you know, should serve us at finding a plain meaning of the text rather yeah. than developing these systems to get behind the mysteries of, of God's mind and some of the difficult things in the Bible, you know, like where it talks about making shipwreck of your faith. Like it just, that's what happened. You know, yeah. this person had faith, they made shipwreck of it. Yeah. Not a faith that they never really had in the first place that it seemed like they did, but exactly. then they blew it, but they really didn't have it, so they didn't blow it. They just never, you know, you get into these yep. explanations that, um, you really have to do a lot of mental gymnastics yeah. to, to settle with versus the plain reading of the text, and uh, which is kind of what I was speaking to in the song. Um, okay, so here, here's the claim that basically, uh, and I've heard this not just from Lutherans, I've heard this from uh, folk within the Reformed tradition who are four-point Calvinists who reject um, limited atonement. They basically accuse uh, Calvinists of uh, being too rationalist, and so will try and and doddle the i's and cross all the t's and and connect everything to make it logically consistent even when the scriptures even if it means we have to go beyond what is written to do that um I, that's not that's not really fair it's not like what calvinists are trying to do is um employ some uh strenuous extent of of uh rational reasoning in order to get into the the mysteries of what God is saying. Um, we're just recognizing that actually the plain reading of the text, um, uh, you cannot read the plain reading of one text in a way that contradicts the plain reading of another text. So if your plain reading of text A contradicts the plain reading of text B, then the plain reading of either text A or text B or both is wrong. That's, that's the sola scriptura point of view. Using scripture to interpret scripture, using the whole to interpret the part, using the clear to interpret the unclear, that is uh, the sola scriptura method of interpreting uh, the Bible. You use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Um, it's the analogy of scripture. But um, uh, the, if you're going to do that, you cannot read uh, one passage over and against another passage. So what Calvinists are saying is that if you look at all the scriptures that seem to say that you can fall away and all the scriptures that um, seem to say you can't fall away, um, it seems like actually the most reasonable way of reading those passages is to say that the scriptures, uh, is that there's more clarity on scriptures that say that you can't fall away than uh, scriptures that say that you can. So, that, for example, in in John's Gospel, where it talks about Jesus saying, "I will lose none; the Father has given me. No one can snatch them out of my hand." You know, uh, we we know the proof, the proof text that the, um, they have gone out from us because they were never part of us. 
uh, from 1 John, you go to Philippians and you say, he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. Um, you've got the golden chain in Romans 8, you've got all these kinds of things that seem to teach um, very, very clearly that you can't lose your salvation. Um, uh, then you've got texts which never actually say um, that you can lose your salvation, but just say that you definitely can lose something. Uh, you can walk away from something. Uh, you can fall away from something. And I guess, uh, the, and Calvinists have simply said, you can't read one that contradicts the other. And so the, uh, the plain reading of the you can't lose your salvation texts is clearer than the plain reading of you can lose your salvation text. And so we have to make sure that we pay careful attention to the you can't lose your salvation text so that we're reading them uh, correctly. And so the issue isn't, we're trying, to, we're trying to rationalize everything and eliminate all the mystery and make sure that um, we've dotted all the I's and crossed the T's and, and get beyond what is written. We're just trying to be consistent. You can't read one part of the Bible that contradicts the other. So uh, that's what's going on here. Whereas Lutherans um, are saying uh, that, uh, no, you, you have to read them both as kind of just at, uh, at face value. Uh, a plain reading of the text, regardless of whether or not they contradict each other. That's not mystery. That's contradiction. Um, that's something uh, entirely, entirely different. So let's get back to this. Used to think like that. If yeah. he walked away from his faith, then he walked away. That, that's what he did, you know. And uh, I think for a lot of people in their minds, because of the prioritization of, of how they describe God's sovereignty, it doesn't speak well of God for someone to walk away. Like right. in their minds that exposes all. And so before uh, Flame gets onto this point, which uh, I'm not gonna comment on, but the, um, the, the idea of if somebody walks away um, or makes shipwreck of their faith, um, that's perfectly consistent with Calvinism. You can walk away from your faith. You can make shipwreck of your faith. The, uh, the question is whether or not your faith is saving faith. So that's the question of James, that even the demons believe, but that doesn't mean that it's saving faith. Um, so the whole thing about saving faith is, is different to a, a, a kind of unsaving faith, a false faith. And uh, you just have to look at the parable of the sorrow for this. Um, so this isn't going to prove the argument either way, but it's an illustration. Okay, The parable of the sower um, you have some seed that falls on the path and it's rejected outright. You have some seed that falls on the shallow ground and it sprouts up quickly, but then it's burnt. The first sign of trouble or hardship, the person gives up on the faith. Another person hears it and, and it grows, but then it's choked out by the cares of life. And the, the fourth person hears it and produces a harvest because it lands on good soil. Now, um, the Calvinists are just saying that it's only that last category that are Christians. That, that the only true faith saving faith that is produced there is the good soil. But there are lots of people who fall away. I mean, the, I mean you get, uh, you get the, the person who rejects it outright. Okay, they, they don't fall away from anything. But then you've got the two guys um, in the middle, the one who receives it with joy, but then falls away because of hardship. That is a false faith being exposed by hardship. Um, and uh, you, you got the guy who's cares, the cares of the world and the desire for riches and pleasure that chokes the life out of it, uh, out of the plant. The weed kills the plant at that point. They fall away at that point. But, um, they're falling away from a false faith, not a true faith. So we have no problem saying that person has fallen away or that person has rejected the faith. Uh, we're just saying that they've, what they've essentially rejected or fallen away from is their, is their own false faith points to some weakness in God as if, you know, he's strong enough to preserve everyone that yeah. has become a believer. Or there's not one block, drop of blood that Jesus shed on the cross that will be wasted yep. by someone, you know, in, in hell. And, and you come up with these things and this criteria by which you judge God. Yep. When God doesn't seem to have prioritized needing to explain that side of himself. Like he's, it seems to be, he's very comfortable with that mystery there, that, you know, divine monergism. When I save, I save. When someone resists me, that's solely and completely on them. And, and, and it's Luther who helped free me. And 
Africa. So um, again, the reform position is quite happy to acknowledge the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Both are true. It's a mystery as to how they fit together. And Calvinists are quite happy with that. The issue here is not that Calvinists won't acknowledge some of the, won't leave the hidden things to the Lord, but are trying to delve into the inner workings of God's mind. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is that we have a Bible um, that the plain reading of a text is simply just not enough all of the time. You have to interpret what you think the plain reading of the text is in the context of the whole Bible. And if your interpretation is contradicting another point in the Bible, uh, then you've, you've got to re-examine that. Otherwise, you're not keeping to solo scriptura. So if you're reading some passages to say you can fall away and some passages to say you can't fall away and you're trying to believe them both at the same time, that is going to create lots of problems for you. You cannot hold that together because that is illogical. Um, so what you need to do is reconcile that somehow. And it is, uh, it is I think, more in keeping with a common sense reading of the Bible, a plain uh, scripture interprets scripture, clear interprets the unclear, to say that, look, the, the passages that say you can't fall away are, are literally saying that. Uh, whereas the, the passages that talk about you maybe being able to fall away are not necessarily saying, are not explicitly saying you lose your salvation. Uh, they are saying you lose a profession of faith. You've, you've walked away from what you had, but what you had may be a false profession of faith. It's not about delving into the inner workings of God's mind. It's about it's about interpreting the Bible consistently. And not having to close that gap, you know, like one of my professors said, um, you know, if there was a circle, um, you know, Luther felt comfortable leaving the circle open where John Calvin felt the need to close it. It's, yeah, that's a good illustration. You know, yeah. and that's something that's difficult to think about. But I should have the humility enough to say, hey, God didn't explain this in a way that we may. Um, it's not a good illustration. And the reason why it's not a good illustration, again, this, this has been, uh, Emeraldians um, have made this critique as well. Um, we're, we're trying to close all the gaps and tie up all the loose ends and some scripture leaves some loose ends open. So you've got to leave it open. That's fine. I've got no problem with acknowledging mystery. I've got no problem saying we can't answer all the questions. And there are some questions where we just have to say, I don't know, we can, we can speculate, we can guess, but we, but we can come up with rational explanations, but we don't know. Um, that is not the issue. The issue is that you cannot leave contradictory threads. So if you've got two loose ends like that, and they don't contradict each other, that they just sit side by side each other, a divine responsibility, divine sovereignty and human responsibility, you can leave them there and you can think, oh, I don't exactly know how they join up, um, but I know that they are both true in scripture. But you can't have a contradiction and just leave that there because that means that you're interpreting something wrong. If you have a contradiction, it means somewhere along the line, you've made a mistake in your interpretation of the Bible. And it's just laziness or arrogance to assume um, that your reading of the Bible is, or your interpretation of the Bible um, is kind of infallible. And therefore, even though it's contradictory, it has to remain contradictory. Um, no, you've got to, if, you, if you're interpreting things as contradictions in the Bible, then you need to go back and say, where am I getting it wrong? And you've got to, uh, you've got to do it that way. So it's not about joining all the dots, connecting all the dots. A good illustration of this, say, for example, um, and this is just the way the church has always interpreted the Bible. Um, you think about the doctrine of the Trinity. You could not have a doctrine of the Trinity that says, um, uh, you could not have a doctrine of the Trinity that says there is one God and three gods. Um, you could not have a doctrine of the Trinity that says there is one person and three persons. Why? Because those two things are contradictions. They're illogical. It's irrational. But a mystery is when you say, hang on, there are two things that are true and I don't know exactly where they join up. So for example, the Trinity would be there is one God and three persons. So one God and three gods is a contradiction. It's a logical contradiction. If you're interpreting the Bible that way, you're leaving the strands like that as a contradiction. And that means you've got it wrong somewhere. But if you're saying one God and three persons, you're saying, man, I don't understand exactly how that joins up, but they're not contradicting. 
It's mystery, not contradiction. And what Calvinists are saying is that actually, if you read some parts of the Bible as saying you can fall away, what you've got there is a contradiction. You've got exegetical contradictions because there are passages that say that you can't fall away. And so if you interpret the ones that say you can fall away um, in that way, then you're leaving a contradiction. There's also theological contradictions. You know, uh, the, the whole concept of new birth and being born again to say that you can die again. Um, no, you've, you've been born of imperishable seed. So there are, th there, are, there are theological contradictions if you say that you can fall away. And so there are uh, all of this factors into our reading of the Bible. It's, it's not just about trying to, trying to be over-rational. Mayfield would be satisfying, so I'm going to humble myself and not try to peel behind that, that mystery. Again, leaving it like this where you, is humility. Leaving it like that is laziness and arrogance. In that wall and just accept what he has revealed through Christ and in the scriptures, you know. And that could be hard, that could be uncomfortable, but I think that's the safest place to be, you know. Yeah, I just realized for some people who are not watching this, who are listening to this, um, I'm holding up my fingers as parallel lines when I say uh, mystery where you don't know if they join together. And I'm holding up my fingers crossing over each other to talk about contradictions. So when I say this and that, that's what I was alluding to. Uh, anyway, just for the purposes of the recording. I think that's, it is true. I mean, when I was um, coming from a Calvinist background, I know when I used to explain, you know, why, you know, Arminianism was wrong. Um, yeah. Oftentimes the, the phrase, you know, but God couldn't fail. Mm -hmm. Right, because if God desired someone's salvation and they weren't saved, it meant God failed in His intention. But God is perfect and God is all powerful, so God cannot fail. Yeah. Um, and you know, That's logically, it does make sense, mm -hmm. yeah, it does. and logically, it might make more sense than to say yeah. the opposite. But the question is exactly as you said: not what makes sense, but what's been revealed. Yeah. And you know, can God work irresistibly? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and the, yeah. The question is: what has God revealed? Uh, but you also have to ask the question, is the way that I'm reading what God has revealed, does that make sense? So this is not about whether your reason versus God's revelation. This is your reason in interpreting God's revelation. Absolutely. God can do whatever he wants. <laughs> but the question is, what has he revealed? And what he's revealed is he, he does work. There is divine monergism. Those who are saved you know, are saved not because of their will in any sense whatsoever, but solely because of God's, God's grace. Um, but there is this other reality that if we're not saved, it's our human resistance. Mm -hmm. But scripture is also clear God desires them to be saved. Yeah. And we're left with this mystery of how do those two things work together. Yeah. And, you know, we ultimately have to, to say, I don't know. That's, how, that's what God has chosen to do. Yeah. God has chosen to let his grace be resistible in that way, even though he wills their salvation. And, you know, who are we to question question that Calvinists always ask, right? Who are we to question God? Yeah, yeah. You know, like Paul well, I, I mean, I think what's interesting about that is he's saying, you know, in one sense, God alone saves. And in another sense, we know that we can resist his will. I just want to ask the question about what he thinks the Bible means when it uses the word save. So, um, you know, when it talks about Jesus who saves to the uttermost, for example, what exactly does that mean? Does save mean sort of brought to a certain level of understanding, but then you, you kind of take it from there? Um, because that's what it would have to mean if you can lose it. In which case, saved certainly doesn't mean the same thing as it would mean in the Reformed tradition, where saved means brought you from death to life for all eternity, brought you from slavery and sin into eternal life in the promised land. Um, that's what saved means in or the reformed understanding of the word saved in the Bible. And that comes from, I mean, again, that's both exegetical and theological. So um, it, it, it's, I'm, I'm slightly, I'm slightly worried about the, the Lutheran hermeneutic that is just too quick to say, well, I can hold totally contradictory ideas. You know, that's two fingers crossed over. Um, and say it's just a mystery. That's not a mystery. That's a contradiction. Um, and so, um, you know, I look. I I, I hope. I hope. I, I realize that what we're critiquing here is an informal com conversation and not a theological treatise. And so, there might be some imprecision of language here that we want to factor in. And fair enough. This podcast itself 
is, I mean, I'm not using a script here, guys. I'm not using precise language. I might be getting it wrong a lot of the time. And so we, I'm going to give grace to that. It might not, it might not always be going in the same way as you would do if you were producing a theological paper. Uh, but still, I, I'm just expressing some concern. In the hermeneutic use that is satisfied with contradictions and calling them mysteries. Mysteries are not contradictions. Paul says in Romans 9, um, but that's a real thing that we have to, to wrestle with is what God has revealed is what God has revealed. Yeah. And, and I think this is the thing about, about Calvinism, what, what's appealing about it is that it is a very uh, logically consistent system, mm. right? It's very logically consistent with itself. Yeah. It answers a lot of questions. And, you know, I like questions and I like answers to questions <laughs> even more, right? Yeah. So um, it's appealing in that way. Like, I like to have answers. Yeah. And Calvinism does give those answers. And all of the five points flow very well together. Yeah. And you've got this idea of a, a covenant of redemption and eternity past that even starts the whole system. And it's all so logical all the way through. Um, but it's not scriptural. Mm-hmm. And I think and Calvinists, of course, are going to deny. Well, I mean, the interesting thing is, so uh, Wolfgang Pannenberg, um, who was the understudy of Karl Barth, I realize may not be totally orthodox in everything. Uh, but in his introduction to systematic theology, he made the point that basically the way that you understand or, or assess theological worldviews and to see whether or not they, um, uh, to see whether or not they, um, I think, it, was he a Lutheran? Karl Barth, he must, anyway, he might have been a Lutheran. I have no idea. Anyway, uh, so um, Pannenberg, he said that basically the way that you make, you assess a theological system is whether or not it has internal coherence. And the reason for that is because um, the scriptures are internally coherent. And so a system that best reflects the scriptures will also be internally coherent. So if there are internal contradictions, that means something is faulty with the system because it, it's reflecting a version of the scriptures that's internally incoherent um, or contradictory. Um, so I just want to ask the question, well, could it be that the Reformed, because I agree, it's one of the most impressive things about Reformed theology is it works so well within a system. I actually do think that Lutheranism as its own system has some wonderful points of continuity. I think the, you know, the, the kind of, it, it makes sense within itself but I don't think actually it, it, it can or it has the framework to provide the same way of understanding uh, when, when these kinds of uh, scriptures and these kinds of concepts seem to be contradicting each other. Reformed theology, I think, has done well with that. That's why it has this internal coherence, because it reflects the internal coherence of the scriptures. Could it be that its internal coherence doesn't owe to its rationalism? but owes to its uh, biblical faithfulness? Just a question. Deny this, but I think what happens is that to some extent logic does take precedence over Scripture in that the way that Scripture is being interpreted is people saying, but this is the only way it makes sense. Um, so you know, a great example of that you know, is, and we haven't touched on the sacraments, but just to, to kind of bring it in a little yeah. bit, um, Okay, so again, just to, just to nail that home, um, if you're reading the Bible and you're saying, it does, you know, um, and you're saying mystery, you can't allow for any mystery, that's bad. If you're saying can't allow for contradiction, I think that is right use of reason. Um, you know, baptism, to say that baptism does anything that is saving um, or in any way brings the infant into God's grace, if that's the case, often the Calvinists argue then, well, that means that they can fall away because not all infants that are baptized are Christians throughout their lives. And it messes with the pee of tulip, right? So oftentimes when I have this, this conversation, I say, but what do the texts about baptism say? Here are the clear words. Here's the context. Um, I often just encounter the argument, but that doesn't make sense with this thing that I believe. Yep. Yep. And, and it's that but that doesn't make sense exactly yeah that's really i think is the the hindrance for a lot of people yeah and sometimes people you know kind of mock lutherans like you guys don't make any sense <laughs> it's just all about mystery and all this weird stuff but but we should be about mystery yeah. i think we should rejoice in mystery you know i say and i say this to the students that i teach right um so again you're coming to some of the lutheran distinctives here about uh, the sacraments 
and they believe in a kind of baptismal regeneration, not the same as Roman Catholics do. Um, but, you know, you are saved through baptism. And that's when Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, that's what he meant. This is his body. This is his blood. That's literally how it's taken. Um, but the, the problem with that hermeneutic is that it only works when it works. So um, not I, I, I defy any Lutheran to see if they can apply that same hermeneutic, that same method of understanding the meaning of the Bible. If they apply that consistently across the New Testament, they're going to run into real trouble. So when you, when you, if you're prepared to take Jesus literally when he says, this is my body and say that that means he's literally saying this bread is now his physical body and this wine is now his physical blood. And you're saying that because that's just what the scriptures say, then you must also accept that when Jesus says, I am the gate, um, then that is what he's literally saying. He is the gate. Um, and uh, you must also accept that when Jesus says, uh, if your eye causes you to sin, you should gouge it out. Because that is what he's literally saying. Um, now, I, I think anyone can see that. If you are just saying, look, that's what it says. That's what you got to believe, you know, uh, then that's what, uh, that's, that's how you got to, how you got to read it. It's just going to, it's going to be a, a nightmare. This is ironically the same issue I think I have with um, dispensational or fundamentalist readings of the Bible. This is just, you can't go biblicist. You can't just go super literal like that. You have to, um, you have to pay attention to author's intent. What did he intend to bring across? And I think a moment's notice or, or just a moment's consideration will, will help you to understand that it is at the very least extremely likely um, that Jesus meant it in a figurative way, in the same way that when he said, I am the gate or I am the shepherd um, or I am the light, these are symbolic and figurative representations of, of, of truths that he's bringing across. Um, so I, I just don't think that that is um, actually what's going on in Lutheran hermeneutics. I think what's, what's really happening there is you've got a good old fashioned case of um, interpreting it that way when it suits the system. So uh, your regular fide, your rule of faith, the, uh, you're reading it with the, with the doctrinal tradition of yours in mind. And so you're interpreting texts in a way that makes them fit within your doctrinal framework. And every tradition does that, but it's not actually a, a consistent hermeneutic that Lutherans employ all the time is if we if we understood god right he's actually about to make a similar point to what i made about the trinity i'm going to skip ahead though and uh and jump to uh one hour in there's some stuff here that they talk about that yeah it's fine you know watching your own time but i don't care enough about it to say anything about it so uh let's i'm going to jump in here that's yeah, true. You're right. So it's easy for you to critique it from without. So I'm, I, I want to admit that, but I'm just saying, just the concept of right. how what do we understand a person that says, "Hey, I, I want to live right. I blew it. I want to live right." How should we interact and think and treat that person? Yeah, I think there's a bigger question of church discipline first, which is just that in the Reformed tradition, we're going to see a difference between that and the Lutheran tradition on this issue. Um, yeah. So the Reformed tradition historically has said that there are three marks of the church. Mm. Um, and this is in, at least in the, the Reformed, the Presbyterian tradition, which is more what I'm familiar with. But so, so they would say, you know, the word of God, the sacraments and church discipline. Mm. And we've always said it's the proclamation of the word of God, um, according to the gospel uh, and the right administration of the sacraments. Yeah. Right. So. That's it. That's what makes the church the church. That's yeah. how we know the church is present. Um, but adding that that third idea of church discipline, giving it that same level of importance as the word of God and the sacraments, definitely means that there's a different attitude in terms of the importance of it in, in the Reformed church. Okay. So uh, two things there. I think that um, even in a Reformed tradition, as far as I understand it, I might be wrong on this, but I think that initially we started off with just uh, 
the right preaching of the, the word and the true administration of the sacraments were the two marks of the church. I think it came, ac uh, came across a little bit later. Um, it was a, a, the, um, the, the discipline of the church. The church discipline became a third mark of the church. Um, but just think about why that's necessary. I, I agree with it. I'm not, I'm not saying that to, to belittle it in any way, but I, <clears throat> it, was a, it was a development, I think, that arose out of necessity. So the, um, just think about what you said there, that if you have the word rightly preached and the sacraments rightly administered, uh, that is the true church. But that clearly isn't the true church. If someone is preaching the gospel, you have a true preacher, and if someone is there administering the sacraments rightly, you have a true administrator of the sacraments. So you have a, a, a priesthood being exercised. You have, um, uh, again, you, you just, you have a, you have a solid pastor. That's what, that's what you have. But what church discipline is saying is that there is also a believing of the word rightly preached and the sacraments rightly administered. In other words, it's implying there's some responsive faith and that is surely unnecessary um, for um, for a church to be a church. Uh, faith is the boundary marker of those who are Christians and those who are, are not faith in the gospel. And so um, uh, I, I just, I, I don't, um, it's, not, it's not true to say that church discipline is as important as the preaching of the word or the administration of the sacrament. You're not saying the church discipline is like the same and it has to happen weekly like word and sacrament does. But what you are saying is that the implication of the word rightly preached and the sacraments rightly administered is that there will be a church community, a community of believers in that word who, who, and receivers of those sacraments uh, who receive those things by faith. And discipline is simply making sure that there is that community of faith. And that when there are obviously false believers um, who are demonstrably false believers by the way that they're living, uh, then discipline um, rules them out so that the community of faith remains intact. So what, where we would probably say something like, well, part of the ministry of the word is that we are called to bind sins. That's part of what we're called to do is the ministry of the word uh, when that's necessary. But that's not going to be, you know, a go-to thing. That's not going to be, you know, one of the things that, that we emphasize really highly. Um, but, of course, there is scriptural precedent for it. So there are going to be those cases where, where we do it. Of course. Um, but what I think what we see in, in scripture is there are times where somebody is, again, an unrepentant sin. Sometimes that sin is pretty horrible in the way that it's described in the New Testament. Yeah. I mean, this isn't like people getting excommunicated because they've gossiped a little too much or whatever. You <laughs> yeah. know, this is where they've used a couple bad words that they shouldn't have. I yeah. mean, this is serious stuff. Yeah. Um, this is, you know, 1 Corinthians, right? A guy's like sleeping with his mother or whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's a weird situation. <laughs> right. Um, but then Paul also comes in in 2 Corinthians and it's like, hey, don't be too harsh. We'll right. bring somebody back in too. So, um, you know, all we can do is trust somebody's profession of faith. Yeah. We get, the only reason discipline happens, it's not to punish them, it's not so we like can examine their hearts, it's because they've demonstrated they're not repentant. As soon as that repentance is there, I don't think we're called to figure out, is it real, is it yeah. not real? Again, we take people at their word. Yeah. Now, there may be, some of this is like pastoral circumstance too, of course. which is where it gets, it gets sticky, right? If somebody says, um, I just committed a murder, you know, pastor, I'm repentant, can I come into your church? And says, but I don't want to go to the police. And I'm just going to, you know, not do anything about it. Probably, like, like reasonably, yeah. you can probably say, yeah, I don't think that's repentance. You got to go to the police. Yeah. Um, okay. So, I mean, the point he's making there is, is again a question of emphasis rather than of yes or no. Lutherans and Reformed have church discipline. So, church discipline is not a distinctively one, uh, one tradition or the other. Um, it, uh, it sounds like even the way that he explained part of the word is to bind sin. You know, that, that sounds very much church discipline marks of the true church. I don't see a huge world of difference there. I think um, what Flame was speaking about earlier in this and in, in the context of this is that his experience has been that church discipline has been harsh. And even when there has been repentance, they've kind of said it's not good enough kind of thing. Um, 
And I think, again, it's a response to that. Sadly, this may be a Reformed Baptist issue. I don't know. But um, certainly, in, in my experience, uh, the church discipline is a, an extreme case scenario and a rare case scenario. That I've, we've exercised church discipline once um, in the 13 years I've been in ministry. And that's because... And that person, you know, we, we kind of did it at a distance anyway, because they were already gone. They'd already left the church. Um, so it was kind of pointless in, in a sense. But um, uh, everybody else, when confronted with their sin, repents. You know? And so you're not asking them to do penance or to prove their repentance. Again, that's not a reform thing. Though. I think that's, um, it's a question of emphasis. And if some churches are going too harsh and respecting a certain standard of repentance and crying enough tears and examining yourself enough and whipping yourself enough or doing whatever, rather than simply taking someone at their word that they are genuinely sorry, they do repent and, and um, confess their sins, repent and, and believe, I th- you, you have to accept someone. But again, I think that's, if, re- if reformed churches are going the other way on that, I think that's a helpful critique from the Lutheran tradition to say, hey, chill out, Um, uh, place more uh, emphasis on the objective, less emphasis on the subjective. Um, I'm going to skip a little bit here. We're going to get to the last part of this and then we're done. Um, uh, And that's really um, where he starts to talk about the difference between Lutherans and Arminians. And I think this would be interesting for those of us who don't know much about the Lutheran tradition. We are in danger of confusing the two. Lutherans are not Arminians, Arminians are not Lutherans. Um, but sometimes it, it sounds similar to us from a reform perspective. So uh, let's just get into that. Um, of course, we want you to hear the word of God. We love you, we care about you, but we care about you enough to say, don't come to the Lord's table because Paul's pretty explicit about that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the forgiveness isn't for you until you repent, yeah. but it's still being offered to you. It's good. Right? It's still there, but you've got to repent and receive it. Yeah, yeah. I love that. That's great, bro. And um, <laughs> totally switching gears. Yeah. What do you say to people who say, oh, you're Lutheran now, you must be an Armenian? Oh, yeah. <laughs> How yeah. do you, you engage with that? So I have that. I mean, I feel like I have this conversation all the time. When I was in, because I went to a college that was, I went to Geneva College, which is a reform school. Okay. Great school, yeah. great professors. Um, but I, I was in an apartment with like six guys who were all theology majors, one kind or another. And we were all Calvinists. Yeah. So when I made that transition to Lutheranism, they were like, whoa, <laughs> like, what are you doing? You're, are you an Arminian now? Yeah. You know, like, what is going on? Yeah. Uh, and, and I feel like it took years to explain that <laughs> to their heads and finally they're like, okay, I get it. You right. know? But, uh, but yeah. it took a while because yeah. I think you're, when you're in that mode, um, because you also have to remember, Arminianism came as a response to Calvinism. Right. So Arminianism and Calvinism are, have always been in conversation with each other mm-hmm. and they come from the same background. Yeah. So Lutheranism didn't come from either of those. It was its own tradition. So it hasn't really had that same background where Arminianism and Calvinism have been formed in debate with each other. Yeah. So because of that, people tend to think you have to be one or the other. You're either Calvinist or you're an Arminian. And I, I don't think that makes any sense. I, I, the, the history of Arminianism and Calvinism is as much the history of Calvinism, Lutheranism, is as much the, the history of, um, I mean, they're all, they all come from the same, I don't know, I don't get that, it doesn't make sense to me. If you, if you meet a Calvinist and they talk to you and they'll be like, oh, you're an Arminian, but then you meet an Arminian and you try to explain what you believe, like, oh, you're a Calvinist. So, <laughs> exactly. uh, yeah, you get responses from both sides and they're yeah. both like, no, you're the other. Yeah. Uh, and, and when you try to explain what you believe, you're like, that makes no sense. <laughs> so, exactly. so kind of the, you know, the, the really basic, and this is, you know, I, I, I give this illustration or this basic thing a lot, explanation, and some people say it's simplistic and probably so, but just to get a basic yeah, overview, it's... You know, you're basically dealing with two questions when you're asking the Calvinist Arminian question, which is why are some people saved and why are some people not saved? Okay, so in in both of those traditions, they're going to have one answer to the two questions. Okay, so you ask the Calvinist, why are some saved and why are others not saved? They're going to say God's decree. And yes, in Calvinism, when you're talking about 
why some are not saved. It may be, depending on your view, that it's God decreed to pass them over, not an active thing. Okay, mm-hmm. So you've got those discussions. But ultimately, it really does come down to God's decree, because God did decree to save some, and he decreed to pass people over or not to send Christ to die for those people. Um, and if you ask an Arminian that same question, why are some saved, why are others not saved, they're going to say free will. Mm-hmm. right? So they're going to say, why are you saved? Because you, through your free will, yeah, maybe aided by God's grace in some way, but aided by your free will, you've chosen to follow Christ. And if you're not saved, you by your free will have rejected. The Lutheran does not give one answer to those two questions. We give two different answers. And that's what people are like, this doesn't make sense, um, which we're also okay with. But the, uh, so the first is, why are some saved? God's grace, completely God, nothing that we've done. My will did nothing. Uh, the language Luther uses is, you're, we're purely passive in our conversion. God renews and changes our wills. God gives us the faith. It's a divi- our faith. It's a divine gift. Yeah. Um, if I am elect, it's totally unconditional. We sound like a Calvinist. <laughs> right? But then why are others not saved? Well, then when we get to that question, we sound like the Arminian because we say, well, it's their will. Yeah. Uh, God wanted them to be saved. He desired their salvation. Christ died for them. Yeah. And the only reason they're not saved is because they've resisted the saving will of God. They've resisted the work of the Spirit. So... People say that doesn't make sense. How can you have like this? Well, I think um, insofar as you're saying the, um, you know, why are people not saved? It's because of their will. I mean, I have no problem saying okay to that. I think, you know, uh, sure. In an ultimate sense, it's about God's decree. Um, and if a Lutheran is saying that it's not, it doesn't ultimately get affected by God's decree, then I just don't understand that system at all. Um, but, uh, again, what Calvinists, no Calvinist believes in a version of God's sovereignty. That means that God coerces the will. So it's perfectly consistent to say that people will, um, not be in heaven or will go to hell because they have lived lives of sin and disobedience and have rejected Christ. Um, you know, that's, that's why they judgment will be according to the the decisions they made they made their acts of disobedience their rejection of christ um god did not take someone who would have believed and just change their mind about it so that they would go to hell um it's not like that you know and so i that that is not a is not a clear enough distinctive. It's too oversimplistic. I agree. I agree with him. He's trying to illustrate the point, but I don't think it works very well. What he said right at the end there, though, um, is that they would say that um, uh, God uh, wants them to be saved. Calvinists would agree with that too, in a sense. In a sense, God does desire all people to be saved. Um, and in another sense, he has decreed that only some would be, be saved. That's, I think, fairly standard Calvinist theology. So we're, we're not saying that God delights in the destruction of the wicked or that he does not desire all to be saved um, in a sense. Um, but uh, this comes into the kind of two wills of God thing, and uh, it's a whole other area. But again, just, just to stick to the point here, that he's not saying anything... That's, that isn't consistent with Calvinism at that point. The, the point where it does become inconsistent, he's saying that God doesn't only want them to be saved, but that Christ died for them. Um, so now he is going into universal atonement, which would be inconsistent with Calvinism. Um, uh, uh, some within the Reformed tradition would be okay with that um, and would be sort of four-point Calvin, Calvinist Emeraldians, but... Um, the um, traditional five-point Calvinism wouldn't 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 go along with that, um, but that's really the only point in that illustration where where you have a true conflict. The rest is well going to depend a little bit more on on what he means by that and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but at the moment, that's that's still very consistent, I think, with Calvinism. Unequal thing, like the pieces don't like quite fit. But that's really what Scripture gives us. A good example of this is. And there are many, many examples yeah. of this. Uh, before he gets into that, I think what it sounds, what to me, what it sounds like, 
is not Arminianism. I don't think Lutheranism sounds like Arminianism at all. I think it sounds like Calvinism that just hasn't quite owned up to the full implications of its Calvinism. So it's like, I must acknowledge these things are true, but I do not want to acknowledge the necessary implications of those things. Um, that's what it sounds like to me. Whereas, you know, um, uh, Calvinists will be more willing to acknowledge the implication of those things and have an internally coherent system. Think about the way that Jesus talks about heaven being prepared for the elect versus hell being prepared for the reprobate. Totally different. Totally right? different. So for the elect, I've gone to prepare a place for you. Yeah. For the reprobate, they're going to a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Yeah. Right? It's not even prepared for people. They end up there because of their rejection of Christ. But you see, it is unequal. It's very unequal, the way that people end up in heaven and God's activity there versus this very passive, hell wasn't even there for you, but you've rejected the gospel and ended up there. Um, and there are a lot of other texts you know you can yeah. go to, but I think that one basic one gives it an idea of how these things work. Yeah, that's, that's, I love that explanation. It makes me think about Romans 9, just the, yeah. you know, that chunk of from 9 through 11 where yeah. God is flexing his prerogative to create a new Israel if he wants out of, you know, uh, Jews who have faith in Christ and out of Gentiles who have faith in Christ. And then a bunch of hard things are said that make some think that the grace isn't, uh, that you, you know, that you can't resist God's grace, but then as you continue to read, I think it's 930, and then you see in, in, in uh, chapter 11 that a lot of Jews resisted. Yep. And um, that's, they actually resisted. And, and God confesses that, Paul confesses that, it's just what happens. And um, Gentiles would graph. Okay, this is the last point I'm gonna make uh, from the video, um, which is uh, the irresistible grace. And from time to time throughout this conversation, references to irresistible grace have troubled me a little bit because again, I don't think they've quite been true um, either through misunderstanding or through just um, perhaps not being consistent in the way that they are seeking to kind of uh, reject it. But irresistible grace does not mean that grace cannot be resisted at all. What irresistible grace means is that once God has decreed to save someone, that person will be saved. And though they may resist it for a time, and God may allow that resistance to continue for days or weeks or months or years, ultimately, uh, his grace and his will uh, to save someone completely on his own monogistic terms uh, cannot be denied. Um, you can't permanently resist the will of God. Um, if he has determined to save you, he will. If he is determined to save you by his grace, you cannot resist it ultimately. But that doesn't mean that you might not spend a lot of your life resisting that grace. It doesn't mean that there are no people in the world who don't resist God's grace. Some people will resist it permanently. But the problem is, is saying that the elect um, can somehow deny their election. And that's what irresistible grace is getting at. Um, and so uh, sort of saying, oh, look, here's a Bible passage where someone doesn't do what God wants them to do. And saying that that somehow contradicts the principle of irresistible grace. is just a, it's, 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 it's not true to what irresistible grace is, is about. It's, it's, um, it's nonsense. Um, so um, that being said, here's, here's my little conclusion and then we'll wrap up. Um, if you've been joining me for all three videos, uh, thanks very much for your time. I hope you found it helpful. I hope it strengthened your resolve um, to hold to the five points of Calvinism and to continue as a reformed Christian. And if you're a Lutheran, a Lutheran watching this, I hope it's given some pause for thought um, about uh, different ways to understand the internal coherence and the use of reason and logic within uh, the reformed tradition. Um, if you're from a reform background, I hope that you'll see there are some valuable cultural critiques from Lutheranism. Uh, I think they have a lot uh, of helpful things to say about our emphasis in the reform tradition, making sure that that lands in the right place. But I also hope that you'll be encouraged to see that uh, much of what is offered by way of a rejection of, of uh, the five points, uh, namely a rejection of limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Um, uh, I, hope, I hope you see that actually the, the Lutheranism really 
doesn't, in my opinion, um, uh, pose a significant threat to that. Um, I, I think that uh, the distinctives of Luth Lutheranism leave a lot to be desired in terms of their exegesis and how it fits into the theological system. Uh, but I deeply, deeply value Lutheran brothers and sisters for their critique on Reformed theology, um, at, at, at the very least at a cultural level, uh, making sure our emphasis remains in the objective work of Christ. And so thank you, Dr. Jordan Cooper. Thank you, Flame. Thank you for the time and effort you put into uh, producing all of these resources. We all appreciate it. Um, but remain uh, unpersuaded that Lutheranism is the way to go. Um, so thanks very much for listening. Thanks to Jeremy Casillo for producing the music. Uh, you can check him out at Indelible Grace Music on Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, all that kind of stuff. Uh, please go and do that. And that is all from me. Um, so thanks very much for watching. And um, I will see you, God willing, with Mike next time.